0: Reading from John chapter two, verses 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here, stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone.
1: Let's have a think about this text that we have before us this morning of Jesus uh, in the temple, the cleansing of the temple, as it is often known. There is a popular internet meme, well at least in Christian circles, uh, which I've I've seen doing the rounds recently. And it involves an artistic uh, kind of classical depiction of this scene, the cleansing of the temple, of Jesus going in with a whip and turning over the tables of the money changers. And the text that accompanies it reads, the next time someone asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realms of possibility. I mean, it's funny, it's snappy, and it nicely punctures the facade of Charles Wesley's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The subtext is clear. Christians might be all turn the other cheek, but don't count on it. Sometimes they can get shouty and punchy too. Well, I have to say, I find this rather disturbing when I stop and think about it. And the reason it disturbs me is to do with a podcast I've been listening to uh, recently. I've finished it now. I've mentioned it before. It's a podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, whose pastor, Mark Driscoll, notoriously promoted what he described as a more aggressive form of Christianity. His critique of mainstream churches was that they promoted a weak, passive faith, and that if people who lived in the real world were to find Christ, then they needed to meet a Christ who could hold his own under any circumstances. In other words, what Mark Driscoll said people needed was a Christ who could flip tables and chase people with a whip. And in support of this macho, cage-fighter Jesus, Mark Driscoll turns to the book of Revelation, a text almost certainly known to the author of John's Gospel, which our reading is from today. Driscoll says, In Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is the guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I could beat up. Similarly, in his sermon on the cleansing of the temple, delivered, if you want to find it online, you can do so, delivered against a backdrop of a projected image of a large whip, Driscoll says the following, here comes Jesus and he is furious, he is angry. Now some of you will be very surprised to hear that Jesus got angry because you have wrongly perceived that Christianity just means that you be nice. Well. What may not surprise you, hearing this, is that Mark Driscoll's 15,000-strong church in Seattle closed down a few years ago, over accusations that its pastor had engaged in persistent bullying, both of staff members and of people from the congregation. Now, I need to be really careful here, because I am very aware that only one who is without sin should cast a stone at another for their sin, and so I don't want to get too drawn into a direct critique of Mark Driscoll, who I'm sure has many redeeming qualities. My critique, though, is of the attempt to shape Christianity as a religion of hypermasculine aggression. This is a project which I think fundamentally undermines the witness of Jesus as the one whose life, death, and resurrection Bring an end to violence. What is at stake here, as far as I'm concerned, is something that really matters. Because it takes us right to the heart of what it actually means to be and live as a Christian. Here at Bloomsbury, we have long taken the view that we are a peace church. We have our peace candle lit each week. We sell white poppies in the run-up to Remembrance Sunday. And we hear sermons from time to time on the importance of taking non-violent action. Now, of course, not all Christians agree with this stand. Many Christians draw on Augustine's just war theory to argue that there certainly are circumstances where it is entirely appropriate for a Christian to engage in acts of violence and warfare. And, indeed, many early Baptists took this position and fought on the side of Cromwell in the wars of the 17th century. Similarly, many from this church fought in the two world wars of the 20th century. There was a book published recently uh, looking at our War Memorial plaque and picking out some of those names and drawing out some of the stories. If you haven't got a copy yet, I do commend it to you. Written by Jonathan Barr and Janice. And also, of course, many of us will know, love, and respect people who serve in the armed forces today. So, to suggest that we worship a non-violent God, made known in the person of a nonviolent Jesus, and to suggest that this means that those of us who would follow that revelation should also be non-violent people, well, this is not an uncontroversial statement. Some of you may remember a few years ago, Bloomsbury was involved in putting together a debate entitled, Who Would Jesus Shoot? between Professor Nigel Bigger, who was arguing a just war case from Oxford University, and uh, Tom Yoder, the American Mennonite, who was preaching here and also then argued the non-violent Jesus side of the debate. It explored in detail the discussions around Christian non-violence and I, I've just put this again on our church website. Um, I put a link to it up there if you want to listen to it again. I'm not going to try and rehearse all of those arguments for us this morning, but it does strike me that any attempt to argue for Christian non-violence must grapple with what is going on in this story of the cleansing of the temple, which is the single event in the ministry of Jesus where he gets anywhere near an act of violence. What revelation of God are we seeing here as God is revealed through and in the life and ministry of Jesus? And what does it say to us then about how we might live as followers of Jesus? Should we be chasing people with a whip? And turning over tables, or not. Well, this is one of those rare stories that appears in all four of the Gospels. Although, uh, if you're paying attention when you read through the Gospels, you'll notice pretty quickly that its placement in the timeline of Jesus' life is different in John's Gospel compared to what we find in Matthew, Mark and Luke's Gospels. In the three Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple episode occurs towards the end of Jesus' ministry, and it's the trigger for the events that lead to his crucifixion. But in the fourth gospel, in John's gospel, it comes right at the start of Jesus' ministry, immediately after the sign of water into wine that we were looking at last week. And this is no accident, because placing these two incidents side by side, the blessing of wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the condemnation of the temple system in Jerusalem, has the rhetorical effect of asking us, as we read this gospel, to hear them together. And I think that gives us the beginning of an answer, to the question of where the presence of God is to be found in the witness of Jesus. And that then might affect where we seek the presence of God in our own lives and actions also. So uh, one might have assumed in the first century that God would be found in the temple in Jerusalem. That would be the obvious place to look for God. But it seems, according to John's Gospel, that the presence of God made known through Jesus is rather to be found in the abundance of wine at a wedding reception and not in the temple after all. Now, I will resist inquiring too deeply as to whether this wedding party with lots of wine could in fact have been considered a work event. And instead, I'm going to concentrate on what it meant for a national system of governance to have so lost its credibility that it deserved righteous condemnation from Jesus. Well, who says times have changed? In those times, the institutions of the state and the faith were deeply intertwined, even more so than in our country where bishops still get their seats in the House of Lords. In the first century, the national influence and importance of the temple priests was much more like this country in the Middle Ages. Civil power and religious power existed in a kind of symbiotic relationship. And in that context, the temple, you know, their version of Westminster Abbey, should have been the place of divine encounter. And it should also have been the place where God's blessing was made available to all. It should have been the place of justice, the place of righteousness, the place where the poor were fed and the lowly were lifted up. It should have been the place that defended the justice for the weak, the place where the vulnerable could come for sanctuary. So certainly it should have been a house of prayer, but from that prayer should have flowed the abundant blessing of new life and hope for all in that society who were seeking God. But the revelation of God in Jesus was that the blessing of abundance was not in fact to be found in the temple in Jerusalem, rather it was experienced at a party in Cana of Galilee. The temple had become the place where the wealthy could gain easy access to God, but where the poor often face insurmountable costs to purchase the sacrifices necessary for them to proceed through the courts into the holy places. The temple, it seems, was not what it should have been. It was not the place where God was made available to all. It was a place of benefit for the few, not for the many. And by contrast, wine at a wedding given freely to all, regardless of who they were, was, it seems, a much better sign of God's intent and of God's grace. You see how the temple and the wedding, how the, the the closure down of God and the opening up of God's blessing are contrasted in these two stories. And there's something important here that the author of this gospel wants us to grasp about the revelation of God in the person, life and ministry of Jesus. And this is that God will no longer be contained or constrained within religious or structural systems. The blessings of God are no longer to be regarded as the exclusive property of the elite. The abundance of God was no longer the preserve of the capital city in the south. The wine had started flowing in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' condemnation of the sellers of cattle, sheep and doves and his overturning of the stalls of the money changers was not an act of random violence born out of frustration and anger. It was a symbolic action to demonstrate a deeper condemnation of the system that required the presence of the money changers and the animal sellers in the first place. So it's noteworthy that what Jesus said as he enacts this visual parable is different in John's account compared to the other three synoptics. In Matthew, Mark and Luke, the more well-known version of this story, Jesus declares, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And indeed, if you know this story from Jesus Christ Superstar in the song, that, that's the version that's quoted there as well. In the fourth gospel, in John's gospel, by contrast, Jesus makes no mention of either prayer or of robbers. Instead, he cries in verse 16, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. In John's version of this story, it isn't a critique of corrupt mismanagement, Rather, it's a critique of the entire financial system that had grown up around the presence of God. It's a condemnation of the principle of buying forgiveness. The presence of the animal sellers and the money changers, well, that was just a function of a system which said that you had to make certain sacrifices in the temple if you were to be cleansed of your sin and restored to a right relationship with God. And so if you went into the temple, you had to change your money and buy buy the stuff. The message of Jesus cleansing the temple was not that the animal sellers or the money changers were inherently wicked. They were just providing an essential service for the smooth running of the temple system. Rather it was the very system itself which came under condemnation from Jesus. And the reason it came under condemnation was because the witness of the sign of water into wine Was that the blessings of a restored relationship with God are to be freely and abundantly given to all without exception. They are not to be contained and constrained within an economic system which privileged the wealthy and disadvantaged the vulnerable. So when Jesus says, stop making my father's house a marketplace, his critique is much wider than just Uh, criticizing the individuals who were perhaps skimming a little bit off the top of their transactions. The Greek word used here by John in the Gospel is the word emporion, from which we get our word emporium, meaning a center of commerce, a place of trading. And the trigger for Jesus' action in flipping tables and grabbing a whip wasn't sinful behavior on the part of the traders. It was the very economic and religious system that had required their presence in the first place. So when we look at who or what is under judgment here, we find it's not individual people being whipped for their corruption. This isn't Jesus taking an action of anger against acts of personal dishonesty. Rather, it's an act of condemnation against a system that has turned the free and abundant grace of God into an economic transaction that generates profit for the priests, which advantages the wealthy, and which keeps the poor and the vulnerable far from God's presence. Well, it would be very easy at this point to find ourselves making analogies with Martin Luther, railing against the selling of indulgences by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages at the time of the Reformation. And there are some strong similarities, of course. But where we need to depart from Luther is in the alignment he made between corrupt Catholicism and what he regarded as Jewish legalism. As we saw uh, last week when we looked at the stone water jars in the, the wedding at Cana story, Jesus was never condemning Judaism. He was always seeking to restore it. He was seeking to bring it back to what it was always supposed to be, which is a religion of grace founded on the gift of God's presence to all people. We always have to be alert to the lurking terrors of anti-Semitism when we engage readings like this. What was judged in this story was not Judaism. It was the temple system which had turned the gracious gift of the covenant into a transactional system to the benefit of the privileged. This condemnation of the temple becomes even clearer in the exchange which follows, where Jesus makes a parallel between the temple and his own body. And it's important for us to realise that Jesus is not here casting himself as the temple destroyer. He does not say that he will violently destroy the temple. Rather, he says to the priests, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And we are invited, as readers of the Gospel, to realise that he's not speaking about the Jerusalem temple at all, but rather his own body, the new revelation of God's presence on the earth. The temple had become a system of violence, a system of oppression, And the original readers of John's Gospel would have known that the temple was, in fact, destroyed by the Romans some 30 years after the death, 40 years after the death of Jesus. So if the Gospel is written in about 90, the temple had been destroyed in about 70. And the author of the Gospel, John, is inviting his readers to make a comparison between the violent end of the temple system and the violent death of Jesus on the cross. The oppressive system of religious exclusion that had grown up around the presence of God in the temple met its violent end at the hands of the Romans, never to be rebuilt. And although the body of Jesus, the non-violent revelation of God's abundant grace for all, had its moment of violence at the hands of the Romans on the cross, the testimony of the faithful was that this was not the end. The cleansing of the temple is therefore to be understood as an enacted parable of the crucifixion, as a sign of the new way that God was now going to be present with people, no longer in the temple, but in the ongoing life, ministry and body of Jesus which becomes the church. No longer is God to be made known through exclusive institutions. No longer is God to be sold for profit, no longer will God be complicit in systems of exploitation. Rather, God is to be found in the abundance of wine given freely to all, and the blood of Christ shed on the cross freely given for the forgiveness of all. And the people of God, the Church of Christ, the body of Christ, I think we need to continually rehear and relearn the lesson of the cleansing of the temple if we are to remain faithful to the revelation of God in Jesus. It is too easy, I think, for us to become focused on the preservation of our institutions. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, I want Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church to continue. But it is too easy for us to seek the preservation of our temple and too easy for us to fall into the trap of monetizing that which God would give freely for all. Now over the years here at Bloomsbury, we've had to decline or terminate bookings from groups who are charging to supply a religious experience which we believe should be freely available. We've had groups, you know, rent the church on a Saturday, charge an entrance fee, and then we've discovered that what they're offering is healing meetings. Now forgive me, I just don't think you should have to pray to enter God's presence and be healed. If you want that, come to me, we'll do that for free. Not guaranteeing the physical healing, but we'll offer the prayers, the rest is up to God. But you see my point, don't you? It is of fundamental importance to us that access to our worship in our church is never a matter of payment. The wealthy do not get more privileged access to God than the less wealthy. But as we consider Jesus' enacted parable of judgment against the temple in Jerusalem, we need to ask ourselves honestly whether there are barriers that nonetheless creep into our institutional life. We need to keep ourselves honest about, for example, our attitudes towards wealth and education, our attitudes towards race and ethnicity and gender and sexuality. Now, on the whole, I think as a church, Bloomsbury does pretty well at keeping the barriers to full inclusion in church life quite low. I could certainly point to other churches who preach a prosperity gospel, who will only elect middle-class people to leadership, and who will either exclude explicitly or implicitly on the basis of essential characteristics such as gender or sexuality. But only those who are without sin can cast stones at others for their sin, and none of us are actually without sin. So this is an invitation for us, not so much to think about how much better we are than them at the church down the road, but an invitation for us to consider our own situation and to begin to identify those barriers that we continue to construct or perpetuate within our own community. Barriers which keep people from God, the negotiating of which has the potential to turn the house of God into a marketplace. It's an invitation, you see, for us to think once again about what it means for us to be followers of Jesus, the one who absorbs the violence of the cross, turning the certainty of death into the possibility of new life. And it's an invitation for us to consider what it means for us to be a people of peace, who nonetheless take action to challenge those systems of oppression that embody oppression and exploitation in our society. If the blessing of life in all its fullness, that we say we believe in, is not experienced abundantly by all without exception, and I am afraid it is not, then we do still have a task before us. I'm going to close by just mentioning our involvement with London Citizens, the Community Organising Network. This is one of the best ways I know of turning the world as it is into the world as it should be. It's a mechanism for challenging the injustices of our city in the name of Christ and building a society where the poor and the vulnerable are lifted up. From welcoming refugees, to promoting fair employment practice, to lifting people out of fuel poverty, to addressing carbon emissions in our city, to building communities where all are listened to and where the voices of the oppressed are raised up. The partnerships we have through community organising, I think, take us close to the heart of Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. So whether we are looking at the relationships we embody between ourselves, the actions we enact as Christians and followers of Jesus, or the way we engage with injustice in the wider world, I think this story of Jesus overturning the tables in Jerusalem has a lot to challenge us and encourage us as we think about our faith and what shapes that will take this next year. And there will be plenty of opportunities this coming year for us to take our place as a church alongside others as together we embody the good news of Jesus in a world of inequality and injustice. So... Who's up for overturning a few tables with me in
2: 2022? More to come. Thank you, Simon, for that. We'll just have a moment uh, reflecting on what Simon has said and then I'll ask a panellist to come up and join us. So we're joined today on the panel by Rosanne and by Jean-Marc and Evelyn, and by Tommaso. Buongiorno Italia! So Simon led us through a very well-known passage there, and um, I must admit, when I saw the reading, I instantly thought of that meme he he talked about where people have shared it. And the the interesting thing when we're looking at a, a, a familiar passage is there's often something new to be said or thought about we often think oh i know all about that and i think simon gave us some helpful pointers there so uh, perhaps we'll start with you tomaso i wonder if you could share some reflections on what simon said this morning.
3: sure and uh, thank you nigel and thank you all um i agree with with simon um, i i think it's important uh, not to fall into the trap of thinking that the merchants in the temple are necessarily somebody else, uh, distinct from us, and perhaps committed to a certain easily identifiable profession we can distance ourselves from. Um, I'm afraid there are plenty of jobs and fields of human activity in which wealth has become, or has been becoming, a precondition to access. Uh, essential services and, and goods. Uh, I mean, I work in higher education and I could give you a number of examples of how many universities have recently become much more concerned with letting half students in, uh, while perhaps neglecting other tasks associated with learning, and also how the same institutions often fail to prioritize financial aid for students who cannot afford to pay high fees over other types of investment. So the the pervasive power of money Simon talked about in the sermon uh, affects us all, uh, I'm afraid. But at the same time, uh, based on my experience, uh, and I would like to, to finish with this positive note, I don't think the cleansing of the table should necessarily be viewed as a sweeping, Almost brutal process, wherein again some individuals are kicked out of a physical space and scared off. The the cleansing of the table, of the temple might also be in in the first place a kind of mental exercise, uh, wherein everyone has a chance to reflect on exclusion and barriers that are all around us barriers that we can help remove and overcome. And from time to time, once these obstacles and malpractices are called out and shown for what they are in reality and what their consequences are for other people, again, not always, but from time to time, change might actually turn out to be slightly easier that, than one would expect. And so I'd I like to, to end with this hopeful comment. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's really helpful. Is it? It's, it,
2: it is positive, but it's a challenge as well to us. Yes. Thank you. Um, do you want to share anything?
4: Um, yeah, I would uh, like to... Um, for me, the juxtaposition the of the wedding where everything is given freely and the merchant of the temple uh, reminded me of the way the NHS is giving tests freely and available to everybody, whereas you have few companies who are making lots of money um, about the same test, basically. So it really echoed with me this morning. And the second thing that I thought was the difficulty to act, um, as Simon said, about the merchant of the temples without condemning the merchant of the temples and to take action against violence without judging the people. And um, a friend of mine, having her neighbor very violently beating his um, uh, wife, just entered the flat and removed the wife, but without putting any judgment on the husband. And I think this is a very powerful example about acting and um, in a peaceful way, but without putting any judgment. And I think this is really a challenge for us as well. So these were the two mm. snippets i thank
2: you. That's like hard, to share. That's hard. I think I would have judged. But yeah, thank you. Um, Jean-Marcus, I'll come to you.
5: Um, I never really looked at this text under the, on the, in, with the angle of violence because I don't think violence is what strikes me here. As a young adult uh, or teenager, maybe slightly more rebellious than, uh, than, than nowadays, I always liked very much this sort of revolutionary act of uh, Jesus challenging the system. Uh, because the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, is a revolutionary one, and so what does it what does it mean for us? And, and I think it's certainly not the sort of uh, Mark Driscoll aggressive, proselytic attitude which uh, which I am very uncomfortable with. But it it does mean uh, the ability to speak up with with courage for the causes we 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 think you know need to be heard whether they are social justice or otherwise in doing so i think we have to accept that you know every group or every individual may speak up for 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 different things and perhaps with different opinions but i think it's our duty to to do so and i think you know i'm i'm glad to be part of a church that that does that from time to time the second thing it means perhaps in the line of what Tommaso said is thinking for ourselves, you know, what are the tables that need to be overturned in our own minds that keep us away from the presence, the presence of God. And, you know, all too often like the merchants of the of the temple, we are, we are ourselves, uh, you know, caught up and, and hostage of, of, our own, you know, uh, merchandisation of uh, of our lives and, and pursuing futile objectives—that, um, you know, I think we need to sort of vigorously chase away from time to time.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Susan. I I
0: not have a great deal to add. Um, I, I think it's. It's always good to look at the stories with a slightly different uh, perspective. So it's, it's always good to reflect on them in a different way. And it's, I'm, I'm here with you, Simon, to overthrow some tables, as long as I don't actually have to overthrow any tables or make any whips or anything. But it's that thing of having someone come in and challenge the status quo and then working collectively as a, as a community or as a church to challenge what we recognise we, we want to to change um, yeah. Thank you. I think
2: it's important to remember when we're looking at injustice that what we're angry with is the injustice not the perpetrators of the injustice people people need to take responsibility for their actions and be called um, for their actions as well but if to take something rather current and, and vaguely political, we can be very angry that the Prime Minister has gone to parties at Downing Street and, and, and yes, you know he needs to be held responsible for that. But actually, what we need to be angry about, I think more, is the culture that exists in places of power where people think we don't really have to follow the rules, where, where, where people are doing these things. That sort of, and, and I, I, we don't need to look at Downing Street only for, for that sort of attitude. You can find that sort of attitude in, in governments, in authorities, in large companies all over the place. And so we should be angry with injustice and tackle that. You now, that might mean sometimes going after someone who's done something wrong, but actually the more important thing is to deal with the injustice. If at the end of this the Prime Minister's wrapped on the knuckles or even has to resign that's one thing but if if people still think well we can still carry on as long as we don't get caught that's another problem we need integrity in leadership and we need to deal with a problem at heart Uh, do we have any online commenters and and before we, we get those shared with us we, if you're here and you'd like to comment please do that feels a bit more scary sometimes but if you have anything you really like to say please do shout out and I shall pass it on for those at home yes Tommaso could you perhaps read out because I
3: certainly can't read what that says sorry let me let let me check um, yeah I can read from the chat uh, Yeah, from Jeff. Uh, Jesus mostly used comedy and intelligence as his tools of conflict. Violence tends to arise from frustration when verbalization are inadequate. When you realize that listeners are thick-eared and um, unreachable with analysis leads to frustrated responses. This is where ER have reached. Yes, thank you, Jeff.
5: Let us pray. Dear Lord, as you chased merchants from the temple, help us review our own priorities in our lives and chase away what stands in the way of a life of true discipleship, guided by your wisdom. Help us combat Our individual and collective foolishness, selfishness and greed that prevents us from looking up, looking up to you Lord and doing what is right. Dear Lord, you are not a God of violence but a God of peace. So let us pray once again for peace. We we, we pray for peace in conflict, afflicted countries, Yemen, Myanmar, Ethiopia, and so many more. We pray for world leaders involved in discussions with Russia over Ukraine. As countries continue accumulating weapons and showing off military power, We pray that further conflict might be avoided. We also pray for peace and justice in our communities where poverty, inequality and exclusion too often lead to conflict, anger and violence, as we saw in communities in Kazakhstan in the past week, but then also much nearer to us. We pray for peace among families and for women and children that are victims of domestic violence and abuse. Dear Lord, you are not a God of the few, for the few, but a God for all. May we as a church be open and welcoming to everybody as Jesus teaches us. We acknowledge our personal weakness and biases. Help us find the courage and the strength to overcome them. May we reach out to the people in need by listening to them, by offering them love, compassion, and comfort, or by providing them other forms of support. We think of refugees risking their lives or staying in camps where the winter conditions are particularly difficult. We think of the people of Lebanon or Afghanistan and other countries where covering the basic needs of food and shelter has become a constant challenge for most of the population. We continue to think of all the people affected by the pandemic directly or indirectly, and suffering from isolation, depression or fear. Dear Lord, in a moment of silence, we pray in our hearts, naming the people we know and placing them under your wing. Dear Lord, we pray for this church and for each other. Help us reinforce our faith and the bond that unites us so that together, strengthened, we can be an open, welcoming, and active part of our local community. Dear Lord, We pray that we may take your words in our hearts and that we find new ways to act on them as we head back to our daily lives. We ask for all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.
2: The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you.